Good evening, and welcome to Rare Book School 2006. Rare Book School has had lectures in this room for 15 years, and I've never seen the chairs set up like this before. Usually there are two chairs in front of each of the 20 pillars, and then we huddle in the middle. So it's kind of interesting. I feel like uh, I'm in church. Well, near enough, near enough at the University of Virginia. The rotunda is reserved for solemn occasions. That's what the manual says. Our solemn occasion this evening is John Buchtel, who is now curator of rare books at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, but was formerly the curator of collections at Rare Book School. We began collecting Jane Eyre in the late 90s, and John took over in a massive sort of way the further collecting of Jane Eyre and its manifestations. And when Barbara Heritage, who will be lecturing on this subject in this room or another in June, succeeded John as curator of collections at Rare Books School, she continued it. And what you have here is the result, and John will tell you about it. John Booktel. It is a real privilege after several years of working on the Rare Book School Jane Eyre collection and even more years of holding the key to these bookcases as a curator of the Rare Book School collections to have the opportunity to speak here in the rotunda. Thank you, Terry, for having me. Thank you all for coming this evening. I would also like to make a disclaimer before I begin. Many of the ideas in what follows are the result of a long collaboration with Terry Bellinger and latterly with Barbara Heritage. It is no longer possible to sort it all out, uh, so I want to be sure to acknowledge that uh, much of the fruit of their work, and even the wording itself probably, is uh, reflected in this talk. Jane Eyre. A plain, unillustrated, three-volume novel. Cliffhanger endings at each volume's end, urging the reader on to the next. Jane Eyre. A two-volume Tauschnitz reprint. Purchasers on the continent only, please. Jane Eyre. In plain publisher's cloth, in elaborate decorated cloth, in series bindings whose oriental asymmetry speaks nothing of the work within. Jane Eyre is a railway novel, brightly color printed, if poorly registered, paper over boards. Jane Eyre, in hardcover, with printed dust jacket, without. Jane Eyre in series, Oxford World's Classics, Modern Library, Everyman's Library. Jane Eyre in full leather, gilt. Jane Eyre in half leather, ungilt. Jane Eyre in faux leather, falsely gilt. Jane Eyre in paperback, Bantam, Cardinal, Dell, Doubleday, Dover. Penguin Classics, Pocket Classics, Puffin Classics, Signet Classics. Jane Eyre as an ordinary girl, as a vintage movie star, as a governess, as a pre-Raphaelite goddess. Jane Eyre's story identified by its burning castle, by its leering madwoman, by a gentleman being thrown from a horse. Jane Eyre abridged, unabridged, reprinted on cheap paper, edited by scholars, printed from broken type or battered plates, 
illustrated fittingly by famous artists, illustrated absurdly by no-account hacks, and the reverse, illustrated in color, in black and white, abridged as an easy reader, simplified for students of English as a foreign language, translated into German, French, Hungarian, Spanish, Russian, Japanese. Jane Eyre is a classics illustrated comic book featuring a flirtatious blonde movie starlet. The same comic book in two different later covers. The same comic book in uncut sheets. The same comic book translated into modern Greek. Jane Eyre is a thriller comic as a pocket classics comic as a pocket classics comic reprinted for homeschoolers hooked on phonics. Jane Eyre, the Classics Illustrated comic, reproduced in small format with an essay by David Hoover, PhD, a study guide to compete with Cliff's Notes. And yes, Jane Eyre in Cliff's Notes. Four different editions, count them. And Monarch Notes. Four different editions. And Barron's Book Notes, and Bloom's Notes, and Brody's Notes, and Cole's Notes, and Max Notes, and Penguin Pass Notes, and Spark Notes, and York Notes. Should reading even a study guide be too much trouble? An audio cassette study guide presents itself, the slogan on its box explaining, because books are long (laughs) and life is short. Prequels and sequels, White Sargasso Sea, yes, and The Air Affair, too, but also Mrs. Rochester, the surprising sequel to Jane Eyre, Mrs. Rochester by a different writer. Jane Rochester, a novel inspired by the work of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre's Daughter, a sequel to Jane Eyre. Adele, Jane Eyre's Hidden Story. Charlotte, The Final Journey of Jane Eyre. It all began with Jane Eyre, or The Secret Life of Franny Dillman. Jane Eyre on the big screen, the small screen, reel-to-reel, laserdisc, beta, VHS, DVD, audiobook, LP, cassette, CD, radio broadcast, streaming over the internet. Jane Eyre is a component of authors' card games as a trivia card game. Jane Eyre as a porcelain doll. Jane Eyre on medallions, on commemorative plates, on postcards, tea towels, thimbles. Jane Eyre on stage in the opera house on Broadway, on T-shirts, ball caps, key rings, refrigerator magnets. Jane Eyre, everywhere. What to make of the ubiquity of our determined, even courageous Victorian heroine and her story? One of the most powerful and perennial perennially popular novels in the English language, Jane Eyre's remarkable richness lends itself to numerous readings and approaches. For some readers, it is an entertaining and heart-throbbing tale of romance. For others, it is one of the earliest and most powerful statements of an emerging Victorian feminist ideology. Still other readers find a narrative about a principled young woman who refuses to tolerate hypocrisy in any form, whether in the misapplied wealth of Aunt Reed and her children, the contradictory self-righteousness of Brocklehurst, the passion of Rochester that wills itself to break the rules of Victorian mores. 
The novel has been remarkably popular since the time of its first publication in 1847. And as the foregoing list suggests, it has been available in myriad forms and versions from multiple sources throughout its history. How to communicate, let alone to explain, the cultural pervasiveness of a novel like Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre? How to make that cultural pervasiveness evident? How to document that phenomenon? How to make sense of the novel's pervasiveness once it has been established? These are a few of the questions with which the Rare Book School Jane Eyre collection and this talk are concerned. Book history thrives on the presupposition that the physical artifacts in which texts appear fundamentally shape the experience, reception, and even meaning of those texts. One of the most effective ways of bringing book history into the classroom, then, is to engage students with texts as artifacts. This has traditionally been accomplished by means of visits to view rare materials in special collections departments. Such experiences can be useful, even transformative, because of, or despite, the hushed silence, mystical awe, quasi-religious proximity, without actually touching the beautiful and impossibly valuable materials on display. Yet there is also a need for more directly hands-on encounters and collections of materials that encourage them. The RBS Jane Eyre collection is designed for just such a purpose, a collection of meaningful but, for the most part, sturdy and inexpensive artifacts assembled quickly using non-traditional collecting strategies, formed to answer the question, what happens to a novel when it becomes a classic? The RBS Jane Eyre collection does not include first editions or expensive private press productions, although if we had the budget, it could. Instead, it covers a universe of material, from 19th century popular editions to mass market paperbacks to comic books to ephemera of all kinds. The collection does hard work in the classroom, providing both a rich array of teaching examples and a rewarding primary resource research laboratory. One does not have to have one of the earliest editions of Jane Eyre on hand to discuss the ways in which the conditions under which Charlotte Bronte wrote the novel influenced its form and narrative structure, although it does help. And when I have the opportunity, I begin with a look at some of the early Bronte editions in UVA's special collections. Terrific collection. Charlotte Bronte's impossible rise to fame began with a spectacular failure. The Bronte sisters' self-published poems, 1846, is said to have sold only two copies. Charlotte's first novel, The Professor, met with repeated rejections the following year. But the reader for the publisher Smith Elder and Company liked her work. He insisted on a longer narrative to fill out the standard three-volume format in which most new fiction was then published, and he urged her to inject her narrative with more startling incident and thrilling excitement, features that would keep a popular readership on the edge of their seats. Three weeks later, under the pseudonym Currer Bell, Charlotte submitted the finished manuscript for Jane Eyre, which Smith Elder published on 16th October 1847. 
unillustrated, without frontispiece, preface, or advertisement, and in publisher's cloth, stamped in blind with a minimal decorative border, the first edition of Jane Eyre was a plain affair. It was also expensive. Its cost of one pound, eleven shillings, sixpence, then the standard price for a three-volume novel, was the equivalent of a week's wages for a skilled laborer. The proprietors of circulating libraries were among the few who could afford to pay such a price. Instead of buying books for themselves, most readers subscribed to these libraries for an annual fee, equivalent to the cost of one or two new novels. The three-volume format, with narrative hooks at the end of each volume, encouraged subscribers to return for the next volume. This provides a tangible example of the medium shaping the message of form affecting content and enabled the various parts of a single novel to be read by three patrons at once. Jane Eyre contains three major climaxes. No modern edition reprints the novel in three volumes and few give any indication of the original volume divisions. The two early narrative climaxes and their accompanying denouements may mystify or even aggravate the reader of today's single-volume edition. Volume 2, for example, concludes with the aborted wedding scene, uh, plot spoiling coming up, in which Rochester's secret prior marriage is exposed, dashing Jane's hopes and sending her fleeing from Thornfield Hall, where for the modern reader of a single-volume edition, the succeeding episode with St. John Rivers and his sisters may seem like an impossibly long and dragged-out denouement, as it did for me upon my first reading. It, in fact, forms the main plot of the third volume. There were three three-decker editions within the first two years. A one-volume edition was published in New York in 1848, and a two-volume edition by Tauschnitz in Germany by 1850. Soon there would be a variety of one-volume editions in England and America, both in publisher's cloth and in paper wrappers, as well as theatrical adaptations and translations into various European languages. The first illustrated edition appeared in 1872, and the novel continued as a staple among Victorian readers throughout the rest of the century. By 1901, when the World's Classics series appeared, Jane Eyre had become so firmly established that Geoffrey Cumberledge chose it as number one in his list, only 54 years after the novel's first appearance in print. Almost 100 years later, when professors Eric Lott and Chip Tucker of the UVA Department of English chose the seventh edition of the Norton Anthology of English Literature, Volume 2, as the textbook for their English Literature Survey course, a course in which I served as a graduate TA, Norton gave the option of having the anthology come bundled with the Norton Anthology edition of one of four 19th century novels, Pride and Prejudice, Hard Times, Wuthering Heights, and Jane Eyre. The one they chose was Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre, together with these other novels, thus effectively finds itself more or less at the center of the English literary canon, a position it seems to have enjoyed for a very long time. As I mentioned, there are no three-decker editions of Jane Eyre at RBS, 
and while we would welcome such a book if it were ever donated, there is relatively little place for a five-figure book in a collector's condition in a collection whose primary purpose is teaching. On those occasions when we don't have access to UVA's copies of the first three editions, we use a no-account 1840s three-decker novel by another author, preferably with contemporary subscription library labels pasted in, simply to help students visualize the point. The RBS Jane Eyre collection is not intended to follow the standard role of author collections in research libraries, although there are author collections that do similar things. Author collections tend to focus on gathering mostly first and other lifetime editions and association copies, and maybe also noteworthy private press and significant illustrated editions. Author collections are usually intended to serve what is ultimately a primarily archival purpose, processed with full DCRB cataloging and access, and with the occasional specialist researcher as their primary user base. I'm not knocking that. That's what I do for a living. The RBS collections serve rather, however, as part of a teaching laboratory, not a library. And the Jane Eyre collection is designed to fulfill that purpose and unabashedly to proselytize for other curators and educators to follow suit. Two related principles have guided the formation of this collection. First is the requirement that books and artifacts in the collection be helpful and suitable for use in a classroom setting, along with the corollary that the collection be formed on a limited budget. Second, as another corollary, the principle of selective comprehensiveness that in certain ways, in certain areas, the collection would attempt to be as thorough as possible, while at the same time seeking to be merely representative in other areas. For teaching purposes, the materials in a collection are useful only insofar as they serve as examples of points the instructor wishes to demonstrate in class. Although I think maybe we've surpassed that principle now. We're If it says Jane Eyre, we buy it, right? The bulk of the RBS Jane Eyre collection consists of items which were acquired very inexpensively and which are either sturdy or replaceable. The bulk of the collection consists of things that would drive most libraries' tech services folks mad with their infinitesimal cost, their banality, and their minute differences. Full-item level cataloging is library library jargon for expensive. Perhaps a cataloger might be willing to catalog a copy of the Cliffsnotes. Perhaps even to indicate the four different editions of the Cliffsnotes Jane Eyre published over the past 40 years, each with different editors, each reflecting the prevailing trends in the pedagogical philosophy and literary criticism of its decade. Yet there are still finer points of distinction to be made. The issue codes or prices are different on almost every one of the 17 Cliffsnotes in the RBS collection so far. And even these things matter, because these may provide the tiny clues needed to the distribution, production, and ultimately cultural influence of that ubiquitous black and yellow color scheme. Indeed, in many ways, most of the books themselves in the collection may be more properly classified as ephemera. No account cheap reprint editions and hardcover, 
paperback editions which were meant to be read once, then discarded. No online library catalog needs to take time to differentiate the second from the 40-second printing of the Signet Classic Mass Market Paperback Jane Eyre, let alone their price differential, 50 cents to $4.95 from 1962 to 1996. That, over a period of just under 40 years, is about a 1,000% increase. While book collectors traditionally go for books in pristine condition, books in a collection like this do the most work when they have been heavily read with creases, gift inscriptions, annotations, and yes, even highlighting. All evidence for a work's cultural pervasiveness, right down to the marginalia of high school students. Possibly meaningless from the point of view of literary criticism, but potentially quite interesting from the standpoint of the history of reading practices and how we are trained to read. Observations of features such as these have an impact on students only in the presence of a tangible, visible, hands-on collection. We tend to dismiss mass-market paperbacks as cheap and disposable. Except in publisher collections or as reading copies, research libraries tend to avoid them. How many printings has the Penguin mass-market paperback of a novel like Jane Eyre been through? How many cover designs has Penguin used over the years? How does the cover art predispose the reader toward a particular attitude toward the novel? The RBS collection will soon include a copy of every separate printing of the Penguin Jane Eyre. Still working on it. With the verso of the title page as a guide, starting with the first printing in Penguin's classic orange and white wrappers, 1953, and moving through the various editions leading up to the classy redesign of 2003. The Penguin is not textually significant, nor is it somehow more important or even more interesting than the Signet Classic or the Bantam or the Dell. But in the classroom, one long row of very similar but slightly different books, all issued by the same publisher, can help tangibly to demonstrate how one incredibly popular classic novel gets there. Each copy stands in for the thousands of copies that were produced in each printing of the novel, lending credence to Penguin's claim in a 2003 trade catalog that Jane Eyre has been through 500,000 copies in the Penguin edition alone. Row upon row of such books graphically suggest the marketing genius behind mass market paperbacks. These books were originally produced for sale not in bookstores, but in uniformly sized racks in supermarket and drugstore checkout lines. Each of these features is useful, useful as evidence for different kinds of social, economic, and even political change, useful for confronting students with the ways the formats in which they receive narratives, information, and ideas affect their contents, useful for exploring the materiality of literature whether or not you go on to try to explain that within the confines of a Marxist or cultural materialist rubric or from the perspective of some other theoretical paradigm. And I'm not necessarily advocating that. The collection's emphasis on cheap, sturdy, and replaceable is not to say that it does not also include some noteworthy cultural artifacts which are genuinely scarce and fragile. 
and we do, we do find ourselves faced with the familiar tension of preservation versus access. The RBS copies of the Leisure Hour Library, large format, unchanged and unabridged 1896 edition, serve as excellent examples of the cheapest possible late 19th century popular and ephemeral reading editions. 96 pages of dense triple columns in tiny type on cheap wood pulp paper in attractive but delicate, uniformly designed green paper wrappers. Famous fiction by the world's greatest authors. Special number, number 42, price 25 cents. You can see them right over there. Arlen, OCLC, Copac, and KVK. I confess I was not brave enough to try NUC on this one. Together, list only three other surviving copies of this edition. And you have to remember that OCLC, WorldCat, lies compulsively. (laughs) As far as I can tell from searching the online public catalog of the Livingston County Library in Chillicothe, Missouri, the home of sliced bread, according to the town's website, their record for an 1896 edition points to a Project Gutenberg ebook. <laughs> the two RBS copies of the Leisure Hour Library edition are in pristine condition, and we would like to keep them that way. Never mind that both were acquired for only a few dollars each. But the goal of the collection is to allow the broadest possible access to the objects, and in the case of this edition, to provide students with a tiny window into what must once have been a vast publishing phenomenon. While we take the necessary precautions and while we handle them as carefully as possible, the critical thing is that that students be able to experience such a book in a tactile way, even if that might mean over the long haul sacrificing the pristineness of one of our copies. The RBS Jane Eyre collection got its start when Terry Bellinger acquired a copy of Thomas Buick's British Birds, which contained the wood engravings described in detail in the first chapter of Jane Eyre. A full appreciation of the impact these images have on the young Jane Eyre is not possible, apart from an understanding of the scarcity of printed images in provincial early 19th century England and uh, of the popularity of Buick's Buick's wood engravings. Uh, They're on display right over there. These prints formed a powerful classroom teaching tool for demonstrating the significance of bibliographical context in understanding a literary narrative. Jane Eyre describes them. We can show you what they look like. Terry slowly began acquiring editions of Jane Eyre with a view toward showing how rarely the Buick illustrations are reproduced, and a collection was born. In 2001, Terry picked up an issue of Newsweek while waiting for his mechanic's pronouncement on the likelihood of the continued survival of his ancient Mercedes. A sidebar caught his eye. The article described four of the latest paper-to-back editions of Jane Eyre, leading him to wonder how many editions were currently in print. Terry and I had our first of many conversations about Jane Eyre over coffee, perched on stools in the RBS press room, chilly elbows supported by the imposing stone. 
Afterward, I made printouts of every edition then listed in Books in Print and Amazon.com. I began a weekly ritual of combing through every listing with keywords Jane Eyre on eBay. I soon learned to refine the search with minus parenthesis CD, comma, DVD, comma, VHS, comma, cassette, close parenthesis. At first, I was just adding a few more paperbacks to our existing collection, then hardbacks, then sequels. I couldn't believe how many there were. At first, we were avoiding things that weren't actually books, but then came the comic books. Irresistible. And the study guides. And the theatrical ephemera. We tried confining the collection to printed matter. But the absurdities among the printed materials, the comic book in Greek, the Royce Quickreader, which claims to have been abridged from the author's own words. <laughs> the comic book reformatted as if it were a Cliff's Notes quickly led us into non-print absurdities, the hooked-on phonics audio tape, the Jane Eyre thimble, the commemorative plate. To make full sense of this object, it seemed that we must also branch out into other more serious non-book items, the unabridged audiobook on CD, examples of the various Jane Eyre movies in VHS, Beta, Laserdisc, DVD. I quickly learned to recognize and skip things not needed or already in hand, as well as to spot the promising but unexpected, to distinguish the common from the unusual and the bargains from the overpriced, so as to place low bids on common things and sufficiently likely bids on scarcer items. Classroom experience with the collection soon taught me to pass by things that, however wonderful they might be, would not play well to a room full of undergraduates, while a full-color 1970s Argentinian poster of George C. Scott as Rochester works brilliantly on a classroom wall. It's back here. An unmarked 8-millimeter film canister of the same movie may not speak, at least not as distinctly, as an artifact. Although the time is fast approaching if it has not already arrived when our students will never have seen film as such, and perhaps even this assessment ought to be revised. Could have had one for 70 bucks. <laughs> Passed it by. The cover of the Cardinal Mass Market paperback of Jane Eyre, 1953, depicts Jane and Rochester in a torrid, passionate embrace, wetting the text of a 19th century Gothic romance to the modern conception of a bodice ripper and a useful object to show when trying to help students broaden their definition of the word romance. It may not be surprising then to discover, as a Jane Eyre keyword on eBay revealed, that the advertising copy on the back covers of a number of modern romance novels use Jane Eyre as part of their marketing strategy. From Judith Bowen's Harlequin super-romance, Charlotte Moore, to Amy Fetzer's Taming the Beast, 2001, part of the Silhouette Desire series, to Diana Palmer's Lady Love, 1984, whose back cover proclaims, Jane Eyre, eat your heart out. <laughs> These are discoveries that only eBay can reveal. No amount of traditional browsing in a bookstore, well, maybe many decades of traditional browsing in a bookstore, would have uncovered books like these but dedicated amateur eBay sellers, impractical in their keenness to gain an edge over the competition, 
sit up all night typing in the blurbs on the backs of no-account novels. Obscure bits of heretofore hidden information suddenly becomes keyword searchable. This is how RBS acquired an obscure novel published in New York in 1848 for $10 in fine condition, containing a wonderful two-page advert for the first American editions of Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. The eBay, the eBay, eBay seller had keyed in 20 pages of ads. This is how RBS discovered that Wide Sargasso Sea is not the only prequel to Jane Eyre, because an eBay seller's description of the novel The Quiet Stranger, 1991, included the dust jacket flaps passing reference to Jane Eyre. Similarly, it was only thanks to eBay that I was able to find a second copy of the Walmart Two for One Dollar edition. The price information on the front cover of our first copy had been defaced, and there was no way that that defaced copy would be adequate to the classroom task of demonstrating graphically that Middle America gets its Jane Eyre for less than it pays for a fountain beverage. It took more than a year to find a second unmarked copy. Thanks again to eBay for enabling individuals to offer for sale items that any self-respecting book dealer would have considered essentially worthless. And rightly so. Many of the books in the collection serve multiple purposes. The various Jane Eyre sequels and derivatives, for instance, raise such intriguing questions as what it is about the current cultural moment that has spawned so many sequels in just the past decade. But these same books also run the gamut of contemporary publishing practices and can be used to great effect in the classroom as concrete examples, young adult fiction, Australian-only editions, science fiction specialty publishing, transatlantic textual and cover art variants, uncorrected proofs, internet publishers, vanity press, lesbian fiction, and yes, even the underground alternative press, an SM retelling of the episode at Mr. Brocklehurst's Lowood School called Disciplining Jane. This barely scratches the surface of the depravity and the riches that 20 minutes a week on eBay can reveal. In terms of pop culture kitsch, eBay has again revolutionized our ability quickly and easily to collect not only printed ephemera, but also such items as the Jane Eyre trivia game, tea towel, thimble, commemorative plate, paper doll, dollhouse edition, and even a CD by a rock group named for Grace Poole the keeper of the madwoman in the attic. These all lend a carnivalesque sensibility to the novel's wide-ranging appeal. Jane Eyre, eat your heart out, indeed. Along the way, we also reread Jane Eyre closely, looking for clues to any cultural artifacts, especially printed ones, that we might be able to collect to help bring the novel's context to life in the classroom. On several occasions, Jane Eyre mentions a cherished, illustrated copy of Arabian Nights. Might Charlotte Bronte have had a particular edition in mind? What did Jane and Rochester's marriage license look like? Can we identify the sorts of missionary tracts and Hindustani glossaries that St. John Rivers must have given Jane Eyre to read? We are looking for concrete objects not the kinds of indirect intertextualities sought by the doyens of 
source studies, but the kinds of direct reference to once familiar things taken for granted by Charlotte Bronte and her early readers, but unfamiliar to students today. Calling cards, a magic lantern, an edition of Perrault's Bluebeard, a wax doll kept enveloped in silver paper, books of physiognomy. There are dozens of such references throughout the novel. In less than a year, the collection had mushroomed, and it began to be used heavily in several RBS courses. The collection also found audiences with several University of Virginia courses, providing a series of case studies of the ways the physical forms in which books appear affect their meaning. I have had several opportunities to test different ways of teaching with the RBS Jane Eyre collection. In our RBS History of the Book survey course, Mark Demunation and I use the collection in its entirety as a snapshot series of case studies of the multiplicity of industrial-era publishing and marketing practices, shifts in cultural attitudes, changes in reading habits, and horizons of expectation. In English literature courses, the collection provides an overview of, of how works become canonical, how works are transformed in the process. This one collection stands in for any of a great number of other works and the cultural transformations they have undergone during the course of their literary lives. In whatever context I teach Jane Eyre, I try always to start with a copy of a three-decker novel, contrasted with a late 19th century cheap newspaper-like reprint. And I typically end by showing uh, a two-volume Tauschnitz edition side-by-side side with a pocket PC loaded with the freely available ebook version of Same, encoded by UVA's eTech Center. Form affects content. Although this kind of teaching is labor-intensive, there are a number of helpful strategies. Teaching with a collection like this one could be limited to a once-a-semester introduction to the materials, which then turns into an opportunity for a guided writing assignment based on some aspect of the collection, and thereby an introduction to research based on primary sources. Indeed, because no one will ever have written on many of these things, the chances of students pr producing original perhaps even publishable, essays will be greatly magnified. The range of possible topics is limited only by the student's imagination and the extent of the collection. One student might work on the transience of theatrical ephemera, another on shifts in representations of Jane Eyre and cover art, another on variations among study guides. Another student might examine the nature of the materials altered or removed in abridgments. Another, the iconography of comic book treatments, Another, the economic changes in the publication of mass market paperbacks. Another student might explore the critical reception of the musical versions. Another, the ideals of female beauty reflected in the various surviving film versions. Another, the elements of the Jane Eyre plot in popular romance novels. One could gradually build up to a course integrating materials of this kind into the classroom on a weekly basis sometimes involving special collections visits, and sometimes using the instructor's own collection. Such a course could be divided into units and even segmented according to different authors or works, one week on illustrated editions or contemporary parodies of Dickens, another week on theatrical adaptations of Jane Eyre, a third on sequels and popular retellings of Wuthering Heights or Pride and Prejudice, and so forth. 
the collections supporting such themes normally need to be ready-made. While this sort of collecting might be in the affordability range of most students, only some of them will have the time and the savvy to find the materials they need. But even a book collecting project in the context of an independent study, an undergraduate research fellowship to fund purchases, and a small exhibition space might make a promising avenue. Collections of this kind, exhaustive, but selectively so, could easily be developed for any of a couple dozen different novels and for a healthy number of plays and and major poems. Unlike Jane Eyre, which tends to be fairly textually stable, a work like Hamlet offers magnificent opportunities for exploring variations in typographic presentation, alternate methods of annotation, not to mention drastic changes in the text itself. Excellent fodder for assignments aimed at decentering smugly self-assured or naively pre-postmodern students. Novels like The Scarlet Letter or The Last of the Mohicans or Don Quixote, verse masterpieces such as The Iliad or Paradise Lost or Faust can come alive in unexpected ways. The term papers and the primary research skills this kind of material fosters will be a welcome diversion, both to instructor and student alike, from the usual and more plagiarism-prone discussions of influence or theme or image. The mechanics of using a teaching collection in the classroom need not be inordinately complicated. The RBS Jane Eyre collection is much larger than it needs to be for the kinds of effective classroom use. For classroom display, just a couple boxes worth of materials is sufficient, although for primary source assignments, more is better. Since the collection has to be able to move from one classroom to another at short notice, RBS houses it in boxes rather than on shelves, acid-free boxes for the books, paper or polyester envelopes or folders for the ephemera, polyester dust jacket protectors, all of which help the collection weather repeated handling by students, can be obtained online from archival supplies dealers like Gaylord or University Products. If the classroom lacks shelves, a folding bookcase or two can be had reasonably. Since most of these books are inexpensive and since few of them are fragile, they can be safely passed around. If the tables in the classroom can be arranged in a U-shape, the instructor can walk the few fragile things around while talking about them. The key is simply to let the physical artifacts tell their stories, to train students to look for the nuances to be found not only in the contents of a book, but also in the container. This one collection addresses a broad array of different book history issues and ideas, all through themes and variations on a single work. As a result, the collection admits the possibility of establishing a common ground among a group of students in a subject area, the history of the book, that is generally so broad that common ground can be hard to attain. Each student in a class can read this one novel and go on to explore together, as a group, the multifarious manifestations and range of treatments this one novel has has received. Some students may become excited enough to start collecting in their own right. Others may warm to the idea of conducting primary resource research 
in special collections. But all the students in such a class will have been exposed in a graphic and tangible way to the idea that information is always mediated. And perhaps they will carry with them a more uh, sophisticated understanding, not only of Jane Eyre and the other novels they read, but also of the media environment in which they live on a daily basis. Thank you.